Welcome, everybody, to the Pink Smoke Podcast. I am your host, Christopher Funderberg. As always, I am joined by the one and only John Benjamin Cribs. How are you doing this evening, John? I'm doing fantastic, Chris. That is good to hear. Today, we are going to be talking to about a film that was a last-minute audible. We got release dates confused for another movie, and we decided to switch it, and I'm glad we did because I think for me and John, uh, for both of us, this is one of our very favorite films of the year, if not our favorite, and it is Hirokazu Koreeda's Shoplifters, winner of the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival. And uh, did you know this, John, that in Japan and China, it was a big hit? It made like $37 million in Japan and $15 million in China. Like this yeah, movie is actually a massive financial hit. His biggest and, domestic hit, yeah, of his career. It's fantastic. I'm really uh, very excited for him. Yeah, and it's it's crazy because this movie is coming out November 23rd. It opens at uh, Lincoln Center in New York City, so you should all go see it. Lincoln Center Film Society, Lincoln Center is also running a small Coriata series leading up to it. And this is a movie that you should go see, but it will just be a blip on the radar in the United States. And that is an outrage and a tragedy. So we are happy to speak about this film and try and do something to raise its profiles, to act as empty shills for Magnolia Pictures. Isn't that fair to say what our plan is tonight, John? I think that's what we're being paid for, yeah. <laughs> no, uh, if, I mean, obviously, if you get a chance, if it's in a theater that you can get to, go see it. Absolutely. If you, you're near the Lincoln Center, go see as many creative films as they're going to be showing. Um, but I mean, I guess the good thing about his films is that they have had really good distribution. Uh, like on physical media and stuff. So yeah, I mean, no, they don't. Just, no, yeah. this is what I'm saying. They don't get good distribution. Uh, they get like perfunctory art house distribution with very little push behind it from like well-meaning companies that buy a lot of movies and don't have much of a track record of raising their profile to what they should be. This is a movie that I was just thinking today that this movie should obviously be nominated for best picture. And it obviously never in a million years would be. So who could possibly give a shit about the Oscars? You know, and this is like a classic, like this movie's so obviously great and is so obviously off the radar in America that just how can you take anything about this cruel world seriously, John? How could you possibly? That's one way of looking at it. Don't, I, don't put out an opposing viewpoint to make for good podcasting or anything, John. <laughs> Go back to the dead air that you love so much. I do. I, uh, I, I have great sound effects to put in to all the dead air moments when we edit this later. No, Ooh. shoplifters. Um, I, I'm just honestly at a point in my life when it comes to cinema where when a film like Shoplifters comes you know, into your life and blows you over, nothing else matters you know the amount of distribution is going to get in the united states yeah. and whatnot i got to experience it i get to share my views on it and it's part of me now you yeah, know but i normally feel that way but this movie is so good this movie i pair in my mind with uh with zama which is the other best movie of the year to me those are the two clear best movies of the year probably two of the best movies of the decade and i'm a real alkalite for both of them i really feel like spreading the gospel of both of these movies in a way I haven't in a decade. You know what I mean? Like I've been slowly feeling that way about Koreeda, like holy shit, he's the best Japanese filmmaker of this century. And this one and Zama, I really feel like 
no, people need to know. They do, you know, like maybe some small part or role that, that I can play in this world is insisting that people get to experience this film that I know is special. But I, you know, I know where you're coming from, from though at the same time. No, I completely agree with you. I mean, I, we touched upon this a little bit talking about uh, uh, the Toronto Film Festival, which we, where we saw this film. Created for me as someone who went from being, you know, definitely interesting, you know, not maybe not my kind of thing to being like, wow, definitely interesting to being, wow, possibly the greatest filmmaker working in Japan. And after Shoplifters, my thought is like, deserves to be in the canon of great filmmakers of all time you know like yeah. i just feel like he is his career at this point has reached such There's a no question yeah just reached such a high level of artistry and uh just compassion emotion everything that you'd want from a from a film from a collection of films by one person that you just you, you have to consider him seriously with the greats the greats of the best of all time and this is the I, one that cemented it for me yes yeah, I would say I was feeling like he's probably the best Japanese filmmaker of this century. And I say that even as um, there are other filmmakers that I probably connect with more, you know, like Tsukamoto is, I identify with more, Tsukamoto's more in my heart and is more like me than Koreeda is. Mm-hmm. But, and, and, you know, I love Kiyoshi Kurosawa a huge amount as well. But I think I was feeling like Koreeda is really, you can't argue with, you know, from like 2008 to 2016, it goes still walking. I wish like father, like son, our little sister after the storm. And it's like, that's, that's an incredible group of films. And like you, this one, it's so over the top that even it's that kind of like he had been doing great work and then this jumps up even a little bit from where he was. Absolutely. And, I wish yeah. like Father Like Son and After the Storm were easily best of the decade for me. This one is like maybe best of all time. Like that's, I, I just, I'm saying I cannot overpraise it enough. Yeah, yeah. And it's a movie too that I also feel like I have no interest anymore defending the films I like to people. When people are like, that movie was dumb. I'm like, eh, you know. Or somebody, you know, whatever. I just don't even want to get an argument. You would go to jail for this film, though. Yeah, I absolutely would. If, if somebody said they didn't like this movie, I would take time out of my day to try and have a conversation with them about what I got from it and what I could do to change their mind. Not just, oh, you're wrong. It's obviously great and you're a dummy. But like, no, there's something really special in this film. And I want everybody to be able to access it. You know what I mean? Like I yes. want everyone in the world to be able to have the experience with this film that I had. So we should talk a little bit about the plot just so people know to set it up. Do you want to give the basic setup, John? We may, you know, as always on this podcast, we may dip into spoilers sometimes or things that you consider spoilers or not. We, John and I both have a bad sense of what's going to spoil the movie for you. So, you know, if you want to see it first, see it and then listen to the discussion and if you like it or don't like it, maybe this podcast can convince you, can allow you that access to the something special in it. But the story, John. So what we've got here is a group of people living together in Tokyo. Um, it's suggested that they, I mean, well, it's not suggested. They, they live there. Basically, there's an old woman who, who owns the small shack that they're all living in. Their relationships is very ambi- to each other is very amb- ambiguous. We don't really know 
who is directly connected to who. Yeah, who's um, a cousin, who's the actual right. granddaughter. Who's yes, the... I've seen plot synopsis that uh, define the, the, two, uh, the, the two leads, the male and the female lead, as being married, but there's nothing in the film yeah that's that that's come that comes out and says that explicitly so yeah and it's also like is it a second wife and one of the kids is the it's all deliberately ambiguous right deliberately. it's they're, not a filmmaking failure that it's ambiguous a huge part of the setup is the yes their last name is shibata but you know that's they that's just what they say we have no reason to believe that that is really their all all their last name but uh so you have um the man asamu who is uh employed you know not gainfully employed you know he works construction jobs here and there um day jobs you know it's and he's more than happy to be on disability and not have to go into work and uh the woman whose name is um naboyo uh takes care of the house but really does not bring in any income and then you have uh a young boy who is in their care and again we well, we Not know super young. He's like an adolescent, almost a teenager. Yeah. Okay. And um, right. His name is Shoto. Shoda. Sorry. Uh, Shoda. And uh, we're introduced to the film seeing Shoda and Asamo going to a grocery store and uh, Asamo covering as Shoda shoplifts food. So that's where your title comes from right there. Um, they, they, you know, they definitely are into petty crime and they are, are fine with it. And into this family comes a much younger girl who they find on the street. Uh, the son finds on the street. <laughs> See, I'm already calling him the son. Shota brings uh, home to the to these people. They try to return her to her house, and it becomes apparent that she's from an abusive household, that um, there's definitely domestic abuse going on within yeah, the house. So, like, happening inside the house is a man screaming at a woman. There's a fight. It just sounds awful with them trying to, when they show up, to drop her off. So Shota convinces the others reluctantly that they should just keep her yeah. in their house. And she becomes part and of the family. And there's two other people living in the house. Her name there's is a Yuri. grandmother. Yeah. There's right, a, the, gra- right. the grandmother is the one who, who seems to own the house and, and must have some kind of relationship to, we we're thinking it's probably with Nabuyo, right? That there's some background yeah. between the two of them. Yeah. Um, but they're all together. And, and the there's way- a sister. There is a sister who sort of yes. seems like early 20s, older than, than Shoto. Older, and I'm just going to refer to them. You know, it's funny because it's an imitation. It's like a husband and wife, an older daughter, a middle, a, a middle son, a young daughter, and a grandmother. That is the way the uh, family structure is set up. But it's clearly an imitation. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? That's yeah. the interesting thing is on the one hand, it's impossible to describe them as anything other than husband, father, daughter, older daughter, you know, that sort of thing, older sister kind of thing. Uh, and it's, you know, I'm not going to remember their names. I'm going to remember those, those family structures. But from the beginning, it gives away that these relationships are somehow non-traditional, you know, right. that there's something about them that's, I don't want to say not right, uh, although obviously they're not right. It opens with shoplifting and like a kind hearted kidnapping, you know, but at the same time, uh, there is something that's, um, that's deliberately non-traditional about all of them. And that's, what's immediately fascinating about the film is this collection of people 
that you again immediately identify as a family. I mean, the kind of question of cinematic families, you know, it can go back to Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you know, yeah. what are the relationship of these three people living in this house together? Um, this is a little bit healthier situation, but uh, four people, John. Four people. Right? Well, that's a spoiler, isn't it, for Texas Chainsaw Massacre? Um, but Corieta obviously has had a very strong theme of family running throughout his films, and specifically what makes a family and you know, what is the function of a family all the way back to 2004 and nobody knows. Yeah. Uh, like father, like son, very, you know, yeah. Tells, tells it to the question of, you know, is it a blood, you know, is yeah, it someone that you've raised since they were a baby, your son, or does it our little sister is another example where they have the half sister that they're trying to bring together after the funeral. Right. Absolutely. And even it's, films, all like, of them after yeah. the storm, is this dad, a dad, the deadbeat dad, you know, mm-hmm. Like what actually makes him a dad. And even I wish where there's a scene where the group of kids who are, you know, uh, on an, on an adventure, on an errand together, um, are rescued at one point by an elderly couple who take them into their house and they immediately have this grandparenty bond with the kids. And you have the, you know, what is it like a 10 minute, 15 minute sequence of them being in this house. Yeah. But when they leave the next day, you, it chokes you up inside because you see that this elderly couple love these kids and they're lonely and they just somehow just miraculously created this overnight familial household with these kids. Yeah. So, I mean, that's just what Coriated does. You know, he just like makes you really drop all of these, you know, restrictions and all of these uh, definitions that you normally would for a family and says, you know, if if people are close together, if they have a bond together, then they're a family, you know, (laughs) there's no reason that they couldn't. Yeah. Well, that's definitely, yeah. There's ironies. He stresses that idea. You Mm. know what I mean? I mean, I I don't mean he emphasizes. I mean, he puts like, he, he lays that idea out as being credible and then puts incredible stress on it. He tries to bend and break this idea that I think we all like and want to believe in, right? Right. That like uh, family is the people that love you. Family is the people that take care of you and connect with you. Right. And then Mm. he attempts to, snap it and undermine it and see what he can do to put immense stress on that, on that idea. And I think you're right to mention, you know, this movie is obviously nobody knows his 2004 film about a group of kids uh, who have no parents who are taking care of themselves. It's based on a true story uh, in, in Tokyo. They're taking care of themselves, a, a group of kids. This movie is an obvious reflection in some way to that. You know what I mean? That where I think nobody knows is about, you know, how bad is it for kids to not have parents? And this movie in some ways is about how bad is it for kids to have parents? You mm-hmm. know, that yeah. it's sort of an, an inversion of that. Um, I think you're right to, to make that connection to it. Although this is a much more sophisticated movie than that. Yeah, you're right. Well, the, the irony obviously is that the very first scene we see the father figure, you know, incur- you know, helping his son shoplift, not just helping, but like, you know, insisting that he shoplift for the family. And we know right away, instinctively, this is a bad situation that we're looking at, you know, that we're yeah. having uh, a family that has no problem having their children commit crimes for them. Yeah. So. Oh, I thought, although I don't know, it's funny. The uh, Nobody knows, I think about that to me felt like, obviously like, oh no, this mom, is a problem, you know, just mm. from like frame one, you're like, ah, oh, these poor kids. 
shoplifters feels to me much more like, uh, oh no, it's such a hard world and these parents aren't perfect, but goddamn, these kids are kind of lucky to have them, you know? Mm-hmm. That, and that the grandmother's kind of lucky to have them and they're lucky to have the grandmother and the kids. Well, that's the obstacle that he sets up for himself immediately by opening it that way, though. Yeah. Is that we're going to see that, you know, that there's, it's a bad situation. And he's going to convince us that maybe it's not as bad as we think, you know? Yeah. Maybe there is something healthy and wholesome about the situation. Yeah. Which couldn't be a worse situation. Or, or maybe it's way worse than we think. That's the other <laughs> right. way that it goes to. And there are definitely some moments in this movie. This movie gets dark. There are moments too that I, I think it's fair to say it's his darkest film, right? It's probably dark the way nobody knows is dark. I was say nobody knows is pretty dark. Yeah, yeah. It gets it gets probably not that bad. Um, spoilers for nobody knows. There's no children die in this film, but you know. Yeah. Uh, well, actually, <laughs> no spoilers. Let me reconsider what I've just said. It gets dark in this movie too. <laughs> So, um, you know, and it, and it goes to, to strange places. And um, one thing that I also want to talk about to just mention a little bit is that uh, this movie is incredibly well acted. One thing that Corrieta is known for is the amazing performances he gets out of child actors. And this is a movie that has across the board great child acting. But this is one of the few movies where I feel like the adults outshine the kids in his filmography, you know, where the adults are, I guess after the storm, maybe a little bit, but I really feel like the, the husband and wife, the pseudo husband and pseudo wife are really phenomenal in this film. Don't you? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I really like uh, Lily Frankie as Asamu, the, the surrogate husband, um, especially because, you know, he's a, a Coriator regular and um, well, most sort of, He's been in like at least three or four of the movies. Yeah. Um, He's somebody who just like, I went to look up what his history is and he was not really an actor until like 2011, basically. hmm. And he's somebody who just shows up and is suddenly like, I remember one year I saw him in so many things and I was like, who is this guy? Because I saw him like a like year and a half span. He's in Like Father, Like Son, Our Little Sister, Yakuza Apocalypse, Fires on the Plane, and um, and uh, and around the same time after the storm, right? And I saw all right. of those in a short amount of time. I was like, "Who is this guy? Who's suddenly in everything by all of the Japanese filmmakers I love?" Well, and, the part uh, that I uh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was saying, and he's phenomenal. I really like him. He's like the sad sack dad and like father, like son. Well, that's why uh, I yeah wanted to say was that yeah. I, the part I associate him with is that role in like father, like son. Who he in that one he is again he's like a a blue collar dad he's like a very loose dad you know he's he doesn't he doesn't fit the traditional you know ideal of you know uh educating his kids or really even watching them or protecting them particularly but he is there for them and he is in a palpable way in a palpable but like but like a childlike way as well you know where it's like he's more of a brother kind of to these kids and, you know, you see them like taking baths together and, you know, just um, him being, again, not really gamefully employed, like employed here and there. He's just kind of around all the time. And he's, his, his love is not what you would consider, you know, responsible maybe, or, you know, yeah. what an adult should have with his kids. But it's, 
very healthy. You it's know, it's very profound, and it's That's contrasted, I mean. of course, in that yeah, profound. It's it's contrasted in that movie with the dad who you know is a workaholic and he is a very stringent uh, parent. You know, who you know takes his kid to piano lessons and really believes in you know good upbringing and whatnot. So. Like busting his ass about homework and all that. Exactly. And he doesn't know how to fix a remote control car. What does he mm-hmm. actually know how to do? His exactly. life is empty and I hate him until he realizes he's a bad person. And then I love him. Um, so it might've been a little bit of, yeah, yeah. Great movie. So it might've been a little bit of stunt casting on Coriatus uh, part to have Frankie play the father in this one as well, because I brought that into this movie thinking, you know, well, I know he's a good dad. I know he's got his faults. <laughs> and, you know, he maybe, and maybe like, this is not a great situation we're in. Uh, and like father like son maybe these kids are not going to grow up to you know be super successful maybe they're just going to be completely undisciplined maybe they'll be criminals you know but for the time being like you know you appreciate the relationship he has with his kids and it's the same thing here where when he's not you know encouraging them to break the law break into people's cars or go shoplift he seems like he's really really concerned about them and he cares about them and then even a relationship forms between him and the surrogate mother Nabucchio they have a really sweet relationship and like you said she's great in this movie uh Sakura Ando she's fantastic yes and uh they and did you recognize her you know what she's that I immediately recognized her from what no what from Penance she's Penance. yeah she's one of the girls oh yeah that's a phenomenal movie yeah um, yeah, so she's great. And they have a um, uh, an unexpected love scene together in this movie too, which again, you don't, you don't really know. I, I thought for a good amount of the movie, they were brother and sister for a big chunk of the movie. Yes. Because they didn't have romantic, you know, gestures toward each other. Um, and then at one point the kids are out of the house. It, uh, un, uncharacteristically, everybody's out of the house, but the two of them, and they're just kind of hanging around and they're like, Oh, I guess we could have sex together. Yeah. And it just kind of goes from there. And then they have like a, like a pretty steamy love scene together. And it's really sweet and yeah. unexpectedly sweet. Uh, and then the kids come home and they have to like grab their clothes and then throw them on and get like a little comedic scene there. Yeah. So you have like these nice little moments of, you know, unexpected connection between two people who, whose relationship is completely again ambiguous you really don't know what their past is together and when he came into her life and if they love each other you know or if it's all just convenience but i also think that that's an intentional commentary on his part where he's talking about the way a lot of married couples end up sort of sexless and just partners in keeping a family together right i think that that's also part of the commentary where he wants you to think about what is a husband wife relationship you know and how they can us domestic 100%. Yes. I definitely agree with you. That's why it's so shocking where it's sort of like, oh, now this is actually like the sitcom where they go, the kids are out of the house, you know, and these sort of like, you know, sexless, you know, characters are suddenly, you know, uh, remembering themselves, you know? Yeah, absolutely. That's Mm -hmm. uh, very intentional on, on his part. Right. Yeah. It's like when Kalmini, you know, decides to, get on with his wife in uh, the snapper, you know, it's that kind of, a... <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, that's actually a reasonable, uh, was that an intentional comparison, John? It was, sure. It was half-assed. Um, 
but no, I think you're absolutely right. I think there's definitely been moments of well, my but life. You no, know, no, I mean, but you months, know, yeah. the snapper is because Corieta gets compared to Ozu a lot. And, um, he doesn't like the comparison. He actually brings up Ken Loach and like the British kitchen sink realism directors. So it's mm. funny that you bring up the snapper, which is sort of like a neighbor to those movies and definitely Freer's coming out of that same background. Sorry, well, I, thought was... you were, I thought you were making a very pointed and, <laughs> <laughs> and like sharp observation about the cinematic trajectory. Because he does get compared to Ozu all the time and it is an awful comparison. I think he has very little in common with Ozu. Um, I mean, maybe, but I just, I, I think that he's somebody who, when I heard, he's somebody that did compare to Mike Lee. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. he seems similar in that way. Not to knock yeah. you too far offline. No, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't make the Ozu comparison myself. I'm not like a big Ozu scholar or anything, but it seems like the biggest connection between their films is sliding doors and food, you know? Yeah. And guys who like to drink sake. Yeah. Um, but not even that much Coriata because it's, you know, mostly kids in the, in this film. Um, yeah. Well, there's I, plenty of kids I, in some, well, I guess there's like a couple kid films for Rosie. Just but. a few. Just, well, yeah, the, like the I was born movies, oh, yeah. but um, the, the title I thought was interesting, you know, with shoplifters. Uh, I always, it always pulls me back to bicycle thieves. You know, it seems like that's like the title reference right there. And there's nothing neo-realist about this film at all. Like I wouldn't compare it to those movies. I don't think it's an intentional thing, but yeah. it just seems like the way bicycle thieves are saying we're all bicycle thieves in our ways, aren't we? Like it seems like shoplifters is saying something about how times are hard for all of us. And we all have to kind of do what we have to do yeah. in our situations, which is another yeah. you know theme for, for Coriata as well. Even yeah. his, um, uh, Jinegeki film, uh, Hannah, yeah, which is um, good. Has it's that sort of completely yeah, it's, it's, out of completely unusual for him, but it, it's good. It is. It's the kind of movie like I'm glad he did. It will never be like one of his ten best, you know. But it's yeah, uh, not going to end up being like you know one of the great ones. But I, I'm glad it exists. I'm glad he experimented with that because um, if there are any filmmakers, I think he he looks to. I think it was probably more someone like a Kobayashi, you know, than like a yeah, an Ozu, I would say. yeah. Yeah, that's a very good comparison. Kobayashi, I when think, he, makes sense, especially like Human Condition. I think is you can see a lot of that in in his work. You know, well, especially the scenes in Kobayashi where it's the family, you know, being together. The scenes in Seppuku where it's the uh, it's Nakadai and his daughter and his son-in-law, and they're all poor but they're happy. You know, those kind of like uh, scenes are the ones that really make me think of Corieta. Yeah. Um, yeah, we should talk about the grandmother character too, because she's so great. There, there's a great, there's a, uh, me, uh, me, okay, Jesus Christ, a Corieta regular. Yeah. That that's a very, um, she's somebody I just think of as being like the quintessential, uh, uh, Corieta actress. You know, she's mm-hmm. just the one I, I think of so much don't you oh yeah yeah absolutely and you brought her up what do you want to say about her (laughs) uh we should talk about it because she has such a unique role in this film yeah where she's uh, her name is she is uh, the matron of this household she's trying to keep everybody together 
she has to keep fending off this guy who comes around snooping around the property wanting to know, you know, um, what, what, what I can't remember. You have to remind me like he's just looking for, for legal documents or something like that. I can't yeah. even remember what he's doing, but uh, he's constantly he's a government speaking. official who's realized something's up. Yeah. That's, that's his only, that's his function of the story. I can't remember exactly what it is, but he's right, somebody so, who's sort of like, where, where, where's your paperwork? That's that guy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so her, her mission here, her job is that she has to be the one to say, Oh, I just live here by myself. You know, no one else is here. And, just keep this front up, you know, which must be, you think must be exhausting. Yes. Um, and it's also interesting she's because 100% it's not the why she's doing it and what the front is. That's another thing about it mm-hmm. is that it's not, it's not, it's not obvious why, what she's hiding is, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. that, that's, that's part of it as well. Just to, yeah. again, to talk about the ambiguous relationships. Right. And then later in the movie too, where she, tells uh Navoyo, i found you the same way right yeah she has a line like that so suggesting that Navoyo is not related to her at all that she may have in fact found her on the street and raised her the way that they are currently raising uh yuri who's the y- young girl that they find yeah which is like well, a but you, no but later in the movie it reveals what her relationship is to the older sister did you do you not remember that part i don't because it's like a montage of where they're at the police station and i kind of got a little slipped up on what they were saying just to get them to talk or to lie you know yeah. but yeah well, no remind me please well it's a spoiler but the family the rich family that the sister is that she's going to and oh, asking for yes. money oh yes okay. yeah Right, That's right, right. like she's yeah. the mother of the ex-wife of the rich guy who is, I believe, maybe even widowed at this point. And the daughter that she has no relationship to is the runaway daughter from the rich people's family. Got it? Yeah, I remember okay. now. That's, that's Hatsu. <laughs> she's the one who works, yeah. As a, who works in the like... I don't even know how to describe that place as the Japanese version of a strip club with a mirror between them. And then they talk on the phone. I don't even know what those places are. I don't even know what they do it in Japan. <laughs> yeah. I'd forgotten that subplot with the, uh, the grandmother going to the, her, her parents and, um, and them giving her money. I'd forgotten about that subplot. So this is just, I can't wait to see. Yes. But it's also, that's again, that's another relationship where it's not clear because she shows up at the house of these rich people and is like, I need money. And the wife in that couple, the rich couple is like, why do you let her in? And the dad, the husband is like, I don't know, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and again, it's like, what are these people freaking relationship to each other? Again, and uh, the ambiguity of it and what responsibility anybody has to anyone else is, uh, is similar. But that's also, yeah. um, you're right that she does say something implying that she she may be found uh uh, the other character right and those are like the still walking scenes you could call them right because i think she goes to observe the death of her former husband right it's sort of what she's there for yeah yeah so and uh and she it should be mentioned she's in still walking she's like the uh angry abusive (laughs) after the guy goes to forgive ask for forgiveness who she just berates him 
and uh, she's very memorable. She's she's in a lot of Coriatus films, and uh, right, she basically forces him to come on the anniversary of their yeah. family member's death. Yeah, yeah, and she just passed away in September, so this is is her last uh, film with Coriata, and I'm going to be uh, super bummed about that because she's an incredible screen presence. She's she's such a unique actress and just uh, physical presence and all of that. Um, and I did that, notice that because she passed away during the Toronto Film Festival and we would have been seeing her movie. So that Oh, is that when it bittersweet. happened? Bittersweet. Uh, yeah, yeah, that week. But she's, she's absolutely, uh, absolutely great. And I think she didn't get... No, I'm Megan, that's wrong. That's wrong. Because she's actually in... What did I just see her in recently? She's in an old... She's in a Seijun Suzuki movie. I just saw her in. Which one? Oh, well, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I'd be curious now. Wait till, yeah, we'll look that up at some point. Hold on, I'll look it up right now. Oh, it's the one with the impossible tiger. Zigwerner Weissen. Weissen. Zigwerner Weissen. I don't know how to say it. Okay. Oh, and she was in uh, Kamikaze Girls. That's a, that's a favorite. And Pistol oh, Opera. What is she so in Kamikaze few... Girls? Who the hell knows? But I don't know. But I'm, looking, I'm looking at her filmography, so I couldn't <laughs> Going through it right now. <laughs> um but as you said the kids are also terrific the two kids yes very good um i'd say though it's interesting the little girl as much as she drives the plot the the five-year-old that they rescue from the domestic abuse normally that character would be the focus of a coriata film and she gets a relatively small amount of screen time i would say that this movie is surprisingly oriented around the adults don't you think Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that entirely. I think, well, in as much as uh, Shoda is, you know, a driving force of what happens in this film, uh, he his actions are definitely directed specifically because of Yuri. There's that uh, really poignant scene where, you know, she goes into shoplift to copy him into shoplift from this little shot that we've already seen him at two or three times. And the owner tells you know stops him and tells him don't catch him well yeah but but not even catches him just just approaches him and tells tells him don't make her do it and gives him the sign that he does when he shoplifts inferring that he's been aware that he's been shoplifting all this time you know that he's yeah. well aware of it even though he seems like just some old guy who doesn't know what's going on and gives the little heart- candy heartbreaking. too yeah. you know it's like, heartbreaking yeah yeah absolutely heartbreaking scene Wonderful yeah. scene. And yeah, and that it's, and I, I guess to, to drift even more into spoiler territory, when you find out what his relationship is to the, his parental figures, it's just shattering. And the scene where mm-hmm. he sort of uh, can't take anymore is just such a heartbreaking scene and causes everything to unravel because they have no choice but to sort of, after this, this uh, adolescent makes a rash, to, <laughs> very tragic decision they have no choice but sort of to give up the game in order to try and and save him and it sends everything flying apart and it's a it's a real it's a movie too the final probably not a third but last 20 25 minutes of it right is after they've all been arrested right and the truth is coming out about what happened and it's a fascinating film because there's some ways in which it could feel perfunctory 
to suddenly have it be almost a police procedural where people are getting interviewed and talking to judges and police and whatnot, right? But a lot of what the movie is about is looking them, them having to say, how do you justify what you did? And when they have to articulate it out loud, it feels absurd and criminal and sordid, right? But Absolutely. It's the kind of thing where if you, and you know if you, it's not. Yeah. If you read it in a newspaper, you know, the story about these people, you'd be like, these are the most disgusting Creeps. scumbags in the whole fucking world. And you'd immediately think about, you know, there was probably sexual abuse going on. There was probably, you know, depravity uh, of all violence. men. Exactly. I bet uh, they murdered that one person, you know? Right, right. Exactly. Um, and again, it's funny because, you know, as you're going through the movie and you have this unsettling feeling of like, maybe we better if they did get caught, you know, maybe everything should unravel. Maybe it'd be better for everybody that they weren't forced to, you know, live this life and have it to constantly hide from government types coming around and uh, burying the person who passes away under the floorboards. You know, maybe that would be for the best, but it's just so tragic that it has to end and i think that's that scene, another thing that scene is so great too where they're where they're burying the body because it's so difficult and they're so dirty and that moment where he's like god i know this isn't deep enough but i can't go any deeper you know where he's kind of like yeah. this is just so gross you know like in the like muck underneath the house yeah yeah and it's, the, it's awful <laughs> yeah but just that like how you know, how can you, when you're confronted with, and I definitely feel that way a lot in life where people will confront me with my own behaviors. And I feel like, well, of course it looks absurd from the outside, you know, and I can't, I can't phrase this in a way that's going to convince you of anything, you know? And it's an interesting mm -hmm. contrast to when the, uh, a little bit of a spoiler, the five-year-old daughter is reunited with her crappy mother and just in five seconds of the mother who's like a regular bad mother and those scenes, she doesn't even seem particularly awful. She just like doesn't want to be bothered by her five-year-old when she's doing something on her phone, you know? And it's right. like that person would never in a million years have to justify being like, well, I had to like answer this call or send this text. She's got to learn to be patient, you know? But it just feels so cruel in the movie. You know, and mm -hmm. it's, it, this is an intentional irony on Corieta's part, the contrast between the things that we all do to be bad parents, you know, that we mm -hmm. would never have to in a million years be called to account for, contrasted by people who make really bad decisions, s genuinely feeling like they're motivated by empathy. You know, I don't want to say trying to do the right thing. That's not the right way to phrase it. But they feel motivated by empathy and they feel motivated by an understanding of how hard life is and how it can get harder, you know? And maybe if they don't do anything, sure, it's bad with them, but it can be worse. And they all know that. Every single one of them in the surrogate family knows how it could be worse, right? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, the, the the silver lining is in that scene with the mother that Yuri clearly has learned what a family is supposed to be from her time with these people. You yeah. know, that she's, she sees now that, you know, her mother is not doing her job, that she's not being 
a loving guardian to her the way she should. And it's, you know, it's obvious from the scene. Um, I wonder if you remember that uh, the scene at the beach right before things get bad where they all take a vacation to the beach and everyone has a great time. Yeah. Yeah. I don't remember if I nudged you and said, the end. The end. I don't want to see anything else that happens from this point on. Yeah. Because no, it's this the is exact opposite of like father, like son, where the, he walks the sun down and he's like, I'm going to give you a secret mission. And I was like, oh my God, if the movie ends here, I'm going to kill myself. <laughs> <laughs> like if this is the end of this movie, I will literally commit suicide right now. Oh Jesus, I couldn't yeah. take it. Yeah. No, it's the literal inverse of that, of like, yeah, just let us, let us end it on the beach. But of course, there's an hour left in the movie at that point, 45 minutes yeah, left yeah, in the film. Can I ask you a question? Do you think in real life, Kieran Kiki was as good as a chef as she seemed to be in these movies? Because the food <laughs> always looks awesome in these films. And I know she's not always cooking, but a lot of the time these movies are just Kieran Kiki, the grandmother, like leaning over a little like pot and fryer in the middle of this like tiny completely cramped houses making these just amazing looking meals that everybody's just like scarfing down you know out of the bowls and the chopsticks and everything and just the food looks so gorgeous i feel like if i met her in person and she weren't a great cook that would be my like i don't know meeting the guy who plays superman and he's you know not a real superman kind of moment (laughs) i suddenly realized as soon as i said superman i walked into like so many poor taste Christopher Reeves things that I got knocked off of. It's like meeting Superman and realizing he can't walk. <laughs> no, I was like, God damn it. How do I get out of this? But you know what I mean? That just like the, I know exactly what you mean. Still walking is, is still the movie that's made me more hungry than any film I've ever seen. You know, they're, they're but it's all of them. I wish the scene you mentioned and I wish. No, it's a constant. Yeah. yeah, no, it's constant in his filmography. It's just the food always looks delicious, but still walking. I remember yeah. specifically just sitting through that movie like, I've got to eat the second yeah. we get out of this theater. Yeah, I want something like, you know, tempura something with some like steamed vegetables. Holy yes. crap. Fried noodles, something. Yeah, and all of the like cakes they're making and our little sister. And then I wish the the like old men who have like the plan to make the grandpa cakes. You remember that subplot? Is that what is that an I wish or am mm-hmm. I confusing which one it's in? Not sure. Yeah, just now. Not sure. That's another thing about these movies is they all um they all they're so thematically tight and similar. That's something that I think is fair to compare to Ozu, where sometimes I'm like, is that in floating weeds or late spring? where they sort of combine because they're so thematically consistent and stylistically consistent that, that it's sometimes hard to remember which subplot is in which film. And I think that that's good. I think that that's, that's, fair. Fair. that's a fair. mark of a, of yeah. a good director to, to have such a consistent vision across things and such a steady hand. Yeah. And you haven't seen the third murder yet, have you? No, I haven't. And it's one of those that yeah. it's just like, again talking about not the not great distribution of these films where it's like i don't even know if it came out i don't know what happened with it if it was released here do you like i feel like it's something i would have had my eyes open for but i just don't even have any memory of it being around anywhere yeah no it was out very briefly i know it did have a short run in the city but that's it yeah um 
that did uh, but came out earlier this year. I think um, I saw all of them at TIFF, except maybe not like Father Like Son, but the, he's definitely been a filmmaker. We're still walking. I wish our little sister and After the Storm. Oh no, I did. I can't remember. And Shoplifters. He's been very much a filmmaker. That's like a, a Toronto International Film Festival filmmaker for me, where I feel like I I get to see him then. Oh yeah, completely. I feel the same way. I mean, it's like he's his work has developed for me through the festival. And even though at, right after still walking, he made air doll, which I saw at TIFF. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's a lesser work for sure. Um, it's fine. It's just, it should have been a short film. You know, it's, it doesn't yeah. really, uh, does not have the relevance. I think of his love as his other films. Yeah, no, it's since, weird. Any, any time he, he goes off model, it's not great. The best of his off model movies is Hana, the samurai movie we we're talking about, but like yeah. afterlife and air doll and Hana, these are all like, they're fine, you know, like if you want to fill out your interest in them, you know, go for it. But Exactly. I think that's probably the reason that I've like haven't rushed out to try to find the third murder at this point, you know, like because it seems like an off model thing and why I'm nervous about his first English language film, which he's doing next, you know, who knows if they'll be up to look, the counter. Look, John, I'll say this about his first English language film. Have they ever made a bad earnest movie? No, I think he'll be fine. That's what right? That's right. Yeah. Ernest goes to Tokyo, the most <laughs> sensitive and intelligent of all Ernest movies. And most earnest of Ernest movies. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I think it'll be uh, pretty good. No, I don't know anything about his first English language movie. You know, for a long time, like any reasonable person, I was going to say this, like this is some secret observation I had. A lot of times when foreign directors make their first English language film, it sucks. Uh, but, you know, Claire Denis just kicked, just kicked the curse to the curb. So I'm giving oh, yeah. myself permission to be excited with, with High Life for first and English language you. films. They, and, you know, they, I they said... They don't have to be my Blueberry Nights. They can be good. You know, you know, I said English language too, and I, I realize now it stars Catherine Deneuve and Juliette Binoche, who could very well be a French language film. I don't know. It's his first non-Japanese language film, I yeah. guess is what I should say. Yeah. Um, and those, you know, that's a slightly better track record, you know, like the, mm-hmm. the uh, better track record when they go to France. I just lost all of my examples of it. I was about to well, say. Well, you're going to you're gonna say Kurosawa, but you didn't like his French movie, though, that much. Yeah, but I was thinking of the, the Binoche one with the Iranian filmmaker who I can't think of his name or the name of the movie. Uh, Kuristami. Yeah. Certified copy. Yeah. Yes, the knockoff of the Kundera story. Mm. Um, yeah, that one's fine. <laughs> hey, you know what's going to get cut from this episode? All of that, me trying to remember that shit. But uh, <laughs> think, let me ask you a question. You know, I think we both agree. Is is this his best film? Is this Coriata's best film? Well, as we you were just saying, you know, they they're so thematically tied into each other. It's it's hard to say this one is objectively better than I Wish or like yeah. Father Like Son or Still Walking. You know, I think they're all so much a part of a, a body of work that's yeah. really hard. I I mean, I did say that this is the one that in my mind, just catapulted him to, you know, uh, 
in, invincible immortal status, you know, yeah. but I think it's, it's bolstered yeah, it's by very, those other very items. like Mike Lee in that way, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I was just thinking yeah. like, what's, what am I going to say that happy go lucky is better than another year is better than. Yeah. You know, I think that's you? how like you that identify. Kind of or yeah, I think that's how you identify like a true auteur, like a true great artist is to say like, I can't pick, I can't point to one definitely better than the rest because they all, need each other you know they, yeah, they're all we were just talking part about of his body of work well. or fassbender you know yeah fassbender is great in their example yeah. fassbender but yeah. we were saying this with the boon well on with the kessler's podcast mm-hmm. how do we pick a top 10 boon well it's impossible yeah i think it's impossible i think it's or Sh- or chabrol chabrol yeah these are all very good examples that's how you know godard isn't a great director because you can pick like the three best ones and move on um that's no, true. The Pink Smokes hard line against Jean-Luc Godard. We are not for Jean-Luc Godard. That's our, is that our tagline? Not in favor <laughs> of Godard. But, uh, you know, another example of the thing we're talking about, Romer. How do you pick a best Romer? You know, Absolutely, yeah, Romer. Yes. Very, very hard. Or a best Miyazaki. You have to be kind of a crazy person, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, I agree with that. That's a good answer to that question. That's a good answer. Because I was sort of trying to think... Can I definitely, this one I'm really excited by, though, for some reason, where a lot of the others, maybe just that, what you're saying, it does feel like it somehow catapulted him to legendary status. With others, you know, Our Little Sister and After the Storm, they felt like he's a modest filmmaker in a lot of ways, and that these movies aren't full of, like, long tracking shots and very carefully composed frames and like really stinging music cues or any of that stuff that people really, you know, get their fucking, you know, minds blown over. Yeah. But I think he's the kind of filmmaker who, you know, could effortlessly do that. I mean, there's one, there's a chase scene in this movie that ends with the character jumping off of like an overpass. And there's this great crane shot that like, you know, reveals, these oranges rolling out from under the overpass, you know, it's like a very well constructed shot. That's the kind of thing where you're like, wow, that's very impressive. It didn't, you know, distract from the movie. It's part of the story and that he could do that all the time if he wanted to, but he's just, he doesn't let himself get in his own way. Yeah. The bike ride through the cherry blossoms and our little sister, which is so gorgeous where it's like, if he look, if he wanted to make an over aestheticized movie, he could, he just is, is up to something else. And mm-hmm. you're right. He normally reserves it. Some of his beach scenes are very, very gorgeous in his mm-hmm. movies, like them after the funeral and our little sister, the one you mentioned in this, or the rainstorm and after the storm is a very visceral scene, but not. Or, not the, or the trains passing each other, and I wish. Ah, oh, wonderful scene! Yeah. So wonderful. If you're not familiar with this filmmaker, really, I don't think John and I are very hyperbolic. You know, if anything, we have a tendency to be a little bloodless about art we love and say, hey, it's something we like. This is one of the really great filmmakers. Like, go see him. You'll love it. He's so human and so humane and so open-hearted that I I sort of feel like you have to be a total monster not to like him. (laughs) Well, you've heard heard that there has been controversy about this film in Japan. What's the controversy? Well, that just conservative critics and even I think they said something about the prime minister shunning the film. Yeah. Because it, you know, paints like a bad portrait of a Japanese family. Yeah. Um, so heartless monsters are against it. Heartless monsters, as you said. 
that they can't recognize the humanity in this, you know, um, low income situation, you know, that they can't see that there is connection and love and support, you know, even when he, you know, you're living in a gang of criminals, basically you're living like in a, almost a Keynesian, you know, uh, yeah. squalor in, in, in the modern world, you know, that yeah. there's still values within that gathering of people. Um, and if you can't understand the ironies that he's putting out in this film, then, you know, you probably shouldn't be reviewing movies at all. <laughs> yeah. If you can't see what Corey is trying to say with his, this and his other films. Yeah. I feel, I feel a little bit like pulling a hairs on here where it's like this film's detractors are idiots you know, that kind of reaction, yeah. but I don't, but I don't actually feel that way. If you don't like this movie and you don't like Coriata, talk to me about him. Like, let's, let's figure it out. There's something really beautiful in here. And it's, and it's art. Unlike a lot of those directors who do like the long tracking shots and very tightly controlled frames. This is a filmmaker that really wants to let you in. You know, like he's not a filmmaker that's trying to shut you out of his genius and pummel you with it and use obscurity as uh, a method for overcoming uh, a lack of things to actually say. You know, using obscurity as a way of bolstering a film's uh, mystique genius. He's not doing that at all. These are like open-hearted films that really want to let you into them. Uh, which is something that I appreciate about it. There's no misreading this film if you understand how to watch a movie. Yeah. And there are also movies that it doesn't push you away. It really doesn't. Even when it gets grim, it's not like, uh, you know, it's not rubbing your face in it. It's not trying to make you uncomfortable with the grimness of it, you know? That that mm-hmm. the grimness of it, is a human grimness, not a sort of like inhuman, grotesque, art house grimness. It's not like a Bruno Dumont movie. You know what I mean? It's, it's not like a Nuri Belge Ceylon movie in that way. When those movies get violent or dirty and grotesque, they really are trying to be gross with it. You know, this, this film is, is a literal opposite of Gaspar Noe. Isn't that fair to say? <laughs> I was thinking of even you know, like a Bellatar, you know, somebody who just has yeah. aggressively stylistic. And when someone says to you, I love Bellatar, and if you don't agree, it's like you're allowed to not agree because, you know, it's going to be a taste thing more than anything. Yeah, because he's a miserable. When it comes to Coriata, right. <laughs> with, with Coriata, I just feel, I really just feel strongly about it. And as you've said, it's just, you really want to convince people that, like, no, this guy is for everybody. This This kind of cinema can bring people together you know this is one we should all agree on yeah and he's definitely somebody who feels down in the dirt like a gardener you know what i mean trying to get this thing to grow trying to get his artwork to grow and it's a very delicate thing in harsh conditions and it may not work and he's he just feels very much like trying to to let everybody in and trying to make this thing grow do you do you rate it on the same level as uh, Zama? Do you rate it above it? Do you think there's another movie that's on the level this, of those two we've seen this year? Because to me, like Zama and this movie just so blew me away. When I saw Zama, it was like, there's not going to be a better movie I see this year. There's probably not going to be a better movie I see this decade. And I don't think Shoplifters is better, but I think it's, it's pretty darn close. In terms of narrative films, if you have a year where you have three films like Shoplifters, Zama, and High Life, 
it's a great year for film. Yeah. Like it doesn't matter what else comes out. Like having three films like that come out the same year, seeing those films in the same year, you should just feel blessed that those, you know, films were all produced at the same time and you feel just great to be living in an era where these films are getting made. Yeah. <laughs> so that's that's a rare thing. If I if there are even two films, if there's even one film of that caliber in any given year, you know, you feel lucky. And this year having three of them like that. I just, it's a miracle to me. So all these films, you know, I definitely rate them all as high as I can. I think that they're all great transformative experiences and the films that are just going to be with me my whole life. So yeah, very grateful that these films exist. And as tough as movies as all three of them can be, they all three of them can be very tough movies. They all leave me feeling very hopeful the way good art always fills you with the feeling of hope even when the subject matter gets bleak, after you see a good artwork, you, I feel full of uh, hopefulness. It's not a specific, you know, like, here's a political plan, hopefulness. It's just like, there's just something very life-affirming and hopeful about Coriatus films and this film in particular. And I think, you know, when I, when I paired up with that trio with High Life and, and Zama, Zama, Don Diego de Zama, it feels you know, there's just something very uh, hopeful about it. I absolutely agree. Um, we have been talking for about an hour. Shall we wrap this up? Should we announce this is going to be released sometime around the release of the film on November 23rd? So I think before then, right around this time, people have heard our other podcast for November, which is going to be on Donald Westlake's uh, James Bond adaptation. If you haven't heard it yet, it's coming soon. If you didn't listen to it and it's already out, go listen to it because the Pink Smoke podcast does two episodes a month now. One is on Pulp Fictions and one is on New Cinema. So listen and enjoy. John says some amazing things on that other podcast. I guarantee it. That's my I was, imp- I was impressed with myself, I have to say. I know, I know. They knocked the one out of the ballpark. It's it's a shame we're going to have to cut all this when you suck so bad on it. (laughs) Just cut it now. Cut it now. Go ahead. Uh, Any closing thoughts, John? Anything else? Uh, For the love of God, if we haven't made it a case yet, see shoplifters. See it if you can. Please do. If you live in New York, you have no excuse. You have to go see it. And let me make one thing clear. Even if you are a heartless monster, you still may like this movie. That's how good it is. <laughs> it might it might do a Grinch on you. Might, your heart may grow after seeing this film. It's totally possible. Yeah, do it in a double feature with the Grinch, is what the new Grinch movie is, what I think John is trying to tell you. 100% endorse this upcoming atrocity that is the Grinch preview. Double feature, Shoplifters and the Grinch. Have a good night, everybody. 